Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, the Mayor's Economic Recovery Task Force met for the first time virtually yesterday. A lot of people on that committee, a lot of people upset about how many people are on the committee. We'll talk with Mayor Fred Eisenberger about that. Experts are concerned about a second wave of COVID-19, but as of today, Ontario will be allowing short-term rentals in the province. Fair B&B weighs in on that decision. And the Bank of Canada's Deputy Governor says the impact of COVID-19 virus on the economy may have peaked already. Ian Lee from the Sprott School of Business weighs in on that. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on The Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Yesterday, the Mayor's Economic Recovery Task Force met for the first time, virtually, of course. 24 non-municipal members were part of the remote call. And uh, some interesting names on there. There are some council representatives that we'll talk about in just a couple of minutes, too. But uh, to give us the lowdown on what's happening and what's expected of this group, uh, we're pleased to welcome back to the program the mayor for the city of Hamilton, uh, Mayor Fred Eisenberger. Mayor Fred, thank you for the time. Good to have you with us today, sir. Uh, good good to be with you, Bill, as always. Thank you. Let's, uh, let's talk a little bit about this. You mentioned this to us, of course, a couple of weeks ago, and I know it was a discussion point at one of your council meetings back then. Uh, mm-hmm. Talk to us about the process of selecting. Uh, it's, it's a pretty large number, but uh, uh, interesting num- uh, numbers of people that are on here, too, are very, very diverse. Diverse, uh, yeah. So, you know, let me just kind of explain that this is about economic recovery. It's about employment in, in all of its forms. And so, uh, you know, some have kind of misconstrued this as business. This is just getting business back up and running. Well, that you know, the business of employment uh, covers a wide swath of, uh, of endeavors in our community. So we actually, uh, you know, identified a number of sectors that we thought needed to be represented. So we have the Chambers of Commerce, of course, uh, you know, as, as, as the business entity. Uh, Mohawk College, McMaster, huge employers in our in our city that, uh, that uh, you know, are obviously shuttered at the moment as well and need to get back up and running. Uh, the, uh, the entertainment and sports area, large employment opportunity, large community impact. Uh, certainly lots of, uh, you know, spillover benefits in the, uh, in the economy in Hamilton. Uh, the film industry and the, uh, the, uh, the, the music industry, life sciences sector. So we, we identified all the sectors and then, uh, and then went to uh, who, who is leading those sectors to, uh, that could be a representative on this, uh, this organization. So most of, the, most of the representation are from uh, the very folks that actually lead these sectors in, in our community. So for Mohawk College, uh, Ron McCurley is the president and CEO of uh, Mohawk College. Uh, he's agreed to be chair. He's uh, a well-seasoned, well-knowledgeable, uh, and well-connected uh, individual that has spent an awful lot of time both in the private sector and the public sector uh, in the province of Ontario. Uh, certainly has broad connections that uh, I think are going to be ben- beneficial and uh, certainly did a great job for us on our on our skill shortage uh, task force that we ran a couple of years ago, and uh, and uh, vice chair with, that was nominated was Terry Johns, who's a, a planner in our city and is representing the West End Home Builders Association. And as you well know, construction and home building, uh, you know, it's a significant part of our economy. So we actually went through sectors, not to forget about agriculture, by the way, and Drew Spoolstra, who's the chair of the Agricultural and Rural Affairs Committee uh, locally here was actually uh, on the phone while he was running his tractor uh, farming the field uh, out in uh, out in Bimbrook, which I thought was novel. But uh, that's that that's kind of the, uh, the the way of farming these days is that uh, you know you you got to you got to make it while the sun shines. And so he was out there working and connecting with us in terms of the uh, in terms of the agricultural sector, another agri food business area that is so so important. And we you know we have growers and we have producers. And so. This is a, a broad spectrum of what's happening in our community, and I would have to think that we're going to find that there's going to be common themes that come out of this, and there are going to be some sector-specific issues that are going to come out of this that uh, hopefully we can either help with directly as a municipality or advocate for with other levels of government. Let's talk a little bit about uh, about the process here. And, uh, and, and it, we should probably mention here, too, that uh, as this was evolving and as as this was uh, this this panel was being selected, uh, a couple of the councillors who had volunteered to serve on this have backed off and said they don't want to do it anymore. Uh, one of them suggesting that uh, that you included a radical labour council member. Uh, I'd like your comment on that. Uh, the others, uh, including Lloyd Ferguson and Judy Partridge, uh, said the task force just is too big and not focused and uh, not going to be very effective. Uh, your comments on both of those things, Mr. Mayor. 
Well, you know, that, 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 that's their opinion. They're entitled to it. Uh, I just don't agree. I mean, if we're going to collaborate uh, with the uh, in the economy, the economy has many elements. And so you can't you can't just say, uh, let's only go to retail and let's just focus on that. There's much more to our city than that. And uh, I think we've reflected that in this uh, in this gathering. And, and yesterday was was a really brilliant opportunity for us to hear uh, what's going on in all the various sectors. And I, I wish that some of the councillors would have tuned into that because it uh, it really gave you a kind of cross-sectoral sense of, uh, you know, what people are experiencing, uh, how they're feeling about the local economy, what they see coming forward. Uh, you know, we gave everybody an opportunity to put their voice to that. And when we meet again, uh, I'm sure that uh, we've asked them to bring back uh, their, their top three issues in their sector that uh, are going to be important for them as the economy starts to open up. And so we're going we're gonna to continue to focus on those issues. And you know what? Labor is very much a part of, uh, of everything that happens in our community, whether it's unionized or non-unionized. And having, having a labor representative there, I think, makes perfect sense. Uh, that, you know, why would we exclude uh, you know, a significant number of the employers or employees that, uh, that are represented by a, a labor organization that has some 50,000 members that they, uh, they advocate on behalf of. So, and I'm not, I'm not anti-labor. I, I don't know why anybody would, would kind of put themselves in that position. Uh, you know, we, we work with unionized people and we work with non-unionized uh, folks, and uh, all of them have a rightful place in our community, and, uh, and their voice needs to be heard. Their voice will be heard in balance with all the other sectors that are out there, both private, unionized, and otherwise. So uh, I, I really don't have any worry that this is going to be overrun by some so, sort of a socialist kind of agenda. That, that isn't at all true. And I, and I would lastly say that, you know, the not-profit sector, uh, you know, good organizations like Goodwill and Salvation Army and Good Shepherd, they employ a lot of people. And so and they're, they're, uh, they're people that uh, need to put food on the table. They're people that are doing good work in our community in the social services side, but they're employed to do that. And how do we get them back into, you know, the kind of work that they need to do to keep our city going on the social services side? So I, I don't exclude any part of our economy, and uh, they should not exclude uh, any part of, any voices in the economy that have a, a relevant uh, things to say about how we're going to get back up and running successfully. Yeah, I, the reporting I saw on this did not attribute those comments to anyone. Somebody on council is all I know, uh, saying a radical labor council member. I don't know if that's a reference specifically to, uh, to Anthony Marco or not, who's the president of the district of labor council. Uh, but yeah. to your point, though, Mr. Mayor, and, and you know that even back in the days when you were a city councillor, uh, in past days of the uh, Hamilton District Labor Council, I mean, Wayne Marston, who was the president for a number of years, mm -hmm. sat on a number of different committees uh, as, as a representative uh, for those. And, of course, Wayne went on to become a member of parliament as well. Uh, I, I think there would have been a, a larger outcry had you not included anybody from that sector to at least be on, around the table to talk about this. Well, exactly. So, uh, you know, you're, you're, you know, sometimes you're damned if you do, damned if you don't. Uh, we wanted to be inclusive. Uh, we wanted to make sure that we didn't exclude uh, voices out there. We may very well have still excluded some areas. Like we don't have, you know, quite frankly, we don't have the, you know, sector by sector. We don't have the dental, uh, you know, industry, uh, you know, represented here. Uh, we don't have the, the, the physiotherapy industry represented here. I'll, I'll put them all under the category of business and services in our community all of them important all of them are going to have uh, some challenges in terms of opening up and hopefully we're going to reflect that in the work we do so that the the, the work that's done here will have benefit for you know all of those agencies that may not be directly named here but we're going to be thinking about and talking about so that we can uh, help them reestablish themselves in some of those areas uh, you know, the, the, uh, the physical distancing and the requirements for protective equipment uh, is onerous. And, uh, you know, I, I can only imagine a dental office. Uh, you know, my, my, my wife uh, retired as a dental hygienist and says today, oh, my God, the, the things they have to do to be able to treat one patient, it's almost like they, they, they literally have to wear a hazmat suit uh, as they, they, they provide the dental work. And when that one patient is finished, they have to go into a private room take all of that material off, put new material on, and wait an hour between patients because the air needs to clear before they can bring the next patient in. I mean, the, the amount of impact on various sectors of, of, of employment opportunities and services in our communities vary so widely, and uh, some of them are so onerous that they're going to need help and assistance in putting all of that together. 
Okay, so, I mean, uh, you've talked to us even before we found out who's going to be on this committee about exactly what you're looking to do here. Um, mm-hmm. You say multi-sectoral leadership and direction to guide Hamilton's economic recovery. But as you've talked to us about in the past, Mr. Mayor, a lot of what's going to happen, uh, or not happen, I guess, as the case might be, is going to be directed by the provincial government. So how much wiggle room do you actually have here to, to implement some of the things that may be suggested? Well, I mean, I think that's that's the the, the whole art of this is uh, you know let's let's focus on what we can do when we can do it. So you know, right now we're we're not we're not in any position to say to any of these industries uh, go and go and operate freely and wildly when we're under provincial orders and we're still under the COVID uh, emergency declaration. So what we're what we're hoping to do is plan for the moments when these things start to open up and what kind of challenges are they going to be facing. So we're we're thinking forward. We're not waiting for, you know, the, uh, the, the announcement to happen. What we're waiting for, uh, what we're planning to do is get out ahead of that as quickly as possible. And at the same time, uh, you know, plan, you know, not only for the immediate term, but also for the longer term. What's the longer term impact going to be? Uh, we don't know yet uh, you know, what the time frame for this is going to be. And so we want to include, you know, the, uh, a year out or more to think about uh, how this is rolling out, how this is going to ramp up, how are we going to manage the, uh, you know, the, the, the economy, uh, what kind of predictions have we seen, and certainly the Conference Board of Canada came out yesterday with some, some generally positive uh, estimates in terms of what they see the Hamilton economy doing uh, in the next uh, six, to, six to eight months. So uh, all of that can will factor into, you know, the kind of local decision-making that we need to do and, and, and possibly advocacy to uh, other levels of government in terms of needs that uh, local businesses and industry have that may, uh, may have to be met by other levels of government other than our own. Just to go back a few months, and it seems like it was 100 years ago, but pre-COVID-19, uh, mm-hmm. We were not perfect by any stretch of the imagination, but uh, you know there was, we were in a groove. I mean, you know, we had a, a fabulous restaurant industry, which was really kind of an organic growth thing that happened all on James Street and King William and a lot of other places, but especially in those areas. Uh, great innovation, of course, and, and from the McMaster Innovation Park and some of the stuff. And I understand that uh, Ty Shaddock's yeah. a, a member of the committee as well. Very much. Yeah. What's the expectation here, Mr. Baird? Can we pick up where we left off, or are we going to have to reinvent ourselves? No, I don't think we'll have to reinvent ourselves. And I think uh, I think what we're uh, what we're heading towards is uh, kind of a minimization of the risk of COVID as we go forward. So, you know, what kind of protections do we need to put in place that will allow us to uh, begin to function uh, a little bit normally? Uh, that uh, that's going to impact uh, you know all 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 endeavors in our community. City Hall is going to be different. Uh, people will need to be physically separated. I think that's a that's going to be an issue in all of the office buildings. So we're, we're, we're heading to a kind of, kind of path where the businesses are going to operate, whether they're you know, working partially uh, online or partially in, in uh, actual dedicated space. That's currently what's happening already. So you know, we're functioning uh, as a city, uh, as a city administration, very nicely with people working online and those frontline workers being where they need to be. But uh, at some point, that, uh, that, that needs to merge and people need to come back. But only half the amount of people will be here. Uh, the other half will be working online from their homes, uh, doing the same work that they've been doing all along. So I don't think I don't think we're reinventing our economy. Uh, I know that some are wanting to uh, build in, uh, you know, more equitable uh, representation for employees, like uh, like the public health employees, like the long term care employees, and you know, and rightfully so. I think that the, the whole pandemic has really highlighted. The, the inequities in some of the employees that, uh, that are working the front lines right now that, uh, you know, for all intents and purposes, we could agree they're underpaid and at risk and uh, undervalued in terms of their contributions to the community. And I think that's an issue that, uh, that certainly needs to be addressed and, and, and that likely will be throughout this process. Uh, interestingly enough, as we see the federal government pouring money into the hands of uh, many, many in our community to keep them solve it and hold and being able to pay their bills as much as humanly possible is really a demonstration of what uh, we've long talked about, which is a basic guaranteed basic income. And, uh, you know, now you're seeing it done, uh, you know, within, within weeks, it uh, came pouring down and we're seeing the value and the benefits of uh, that by virtue of the fact that uh, we don't see a total collapse of our economy. We don't see, uh, see a, uh, you know, a total unemployment picture. We see an increased one. 
And um, my hope is that as, as the economy ramps back up, that the employment numbers will come down and we'll start moving towards a more um, equitable, more, more fair, more reasonable, but more, uh, more highly engaged uh, employment numbers that uh, I think we can get back to basically relatively where we were before. The whole, the whole idea behind the government investing money in businesses and individuals, even though they're not operating, is to be able to reestablish the economy when we're ready to go. And I think we're, we're in a good position to do that. A uh, quick email from Alexis, who's listening to our conversation at bkelly900chmail.com, said, uh, Mr. Mayor, the best way to approach this probably would have been to have a small steering committee, maybe six members of that committee, and then others representing various other interests to try to keep the focus going. What's your thought about that? Well, that may that may occur. I mean, we may we may end up in areas that would require, you know, a little sub, subsets of this, this group. Uh, you know, we'll see how that goes. And, uh, you know, it, 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 so there's the argument about size can can be a challenge. You could make the same argument about council, uh, you know, oh, and, and many have, <laughs> and many have, and, and it, it's a function of who's at the table and and what kind of issues are we going to be dealing with. And if if it's an overriding issue that needs focus and attention, there's no reason why this group couldn't carve off, uh, you know, six or seven people and say, you folks go and look at this sector here and report back to the bigger group uh, going forward. So that's. That's clearly a possibility, but I think the the importance of having all of these sectors represented in one kind of uh, uh, overriding body, I think, has enormous value. Uh, at the end of the day, we can uh, we can we can subsection uh, you know a little subcommittee here and there to go and look at specific issues and report back, and I think that makes perfect sense. And that's probably likely where it'll end up. I'm not going to uh, prejudge what our good chair Rob McCurley might uh, might head towards, but it all depends on the issues that come to the table. And so we've asked each sector to bring three uh you know key issues for them as the uh, as the economy starts to move forward and uh, things that they need to have addressed that will help them do that and uh, out of that we'll get a pretty good idea of the kinds of things that we're going to need to focus on and uh, from there we can make a determination as to how we parse that off for little subcommittees or a greater focus on each individual issue Hamilton Mayor Fred Eisenberger. Uh, Mr. Mayor, thanks as always for the time. We'll uh, stay in touch as this evolves over the next little while. Have a great weekend. Yeah, you too. Have a great weekend. See you. Bye-bye. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Enough with the COVID-19 restrictions, they're saying. It's time to get back to business. But not everybody feels that way. As a matter of fact, there are some people that think we're going too slowly with the reopening, others thinking, no, 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 we need to be a little more cautious. Notwithstanding that controversy, uh, the Premier does say that, uh, well, it's time to start opening some doors and let's get back to and get this economy rolling. Here's, here's what he had to say. It's on the table and just uh, in front of the, the Health Committee right now, and uh, once we get that uh, approved, uh, we're going to move forward and, and get that done. I, I know there's, there's a lot of people that uh, need that income and there's a lot of people that want to uh, rent uh, rent the place so we're, we're working on that right now and hopefully by next week we'll be rolling that out uh premier talking about of course uh, rentals summer rentals and and uh, airbnb uh but not everybody is uh, is as sure as the, the the premier seems to be that things are going to roll along nicely uh including our next guest i want to bring uh, torben white it's into the conversation though torben is with uh, fair b and b uh torben thank you so much for the time glad you could join us today Thank you for having us. Let's let's talk a little bit about rentals. And if this is the season. Everybody wants, you know, summer holidays. They're going to take some time. They want to head up there. They want to use the Airbnb. They want to do a little bit of traveling. What, what's your thought on that? Do you have some concerns? Um, yeah, I mean, we hear a lot from our um, constituents and um, people that are concerned about the short-term rental industry, um, it, it, you know, in general and before covid um, in Toronto, the way it works mostly is that you have a lot of downtown residential condominium buildings that have a very high density of short-term rentals and Airbnbs. And um, residents that actually live in these buildings um, have a whole range of concerns even before COVID. But yeah. now with, um, you know, the pandemic, they, you know, uh, realize just what an impact this uh, short-term rentals rental industry has on their lives because now very few people rent and things have calmed down um at the same time they're very concerned now that we hear about a lift of the short-term rental industry which means that people are bracing in downtown residential communities um to to literally um have their doors opened to travelers and partiers and guests 
um, as pre-COVID. Um, so they're concerned that they have to share their elevators, their common space, um, their hallways with people on the weekends. And, you know, they I think they have a legitimate concern. And, and I'm not quite sure whether the province could have taken a more fine-grained regional approach um, to this question of um, reopening the short-term rental industry. Yeah, and you're right. I mean, this was not without controversy even before COVID. But a lot of the concerns in in those days, well, as you well know, Torben, uh, were security concerns. There were you know many many stories and some tragic stories uh, about people that that use some of those places in in some of these urban areas, and specifically in Toronto, uh, where violence had occurred and some other incidents had occurred, and and they wanted a crackdown. And I know a number of people on Toronto City Council were trying to do something about that, and there's probably going to be some more legislation about that. But now it seems to it's public safety now. There, uh, the people that are actually not renting, but living in in some of these facilities are saying i don't know who's going to be next door i don't want to get on the elevator with somebody who may or may not be testing positive uh you know and we don't want to be part of the second wave and it's a legitimate concern yeah 100 percent. and i mean that's the the whole downside of the so-called sharing economy right these these yeah. platforms enable people to share quote-unquote um people's um, living areas and people's residences and people's apartment buildings condo buildings and you know you in, in this case, you may actually be sharing a deadly virus. So, um, you know, we think, I think we need to really rethink what that means, um, what the sharing economy means in the, you know, um, post-COVID era when we deal with, with um, highly infectious diseases. And, you know, there's also something to be said about having actual hotels that are zoned as hotels that are not intermingled with people's homes and people's residential areas. Um, that have a much better handle on rolling out standardized cleaning procedures and safety measures with like tens of thousands of individual Airbnb hosts distributed across the condominium communities. You have no idea if these units are cleaned, when they have been cleaned, by whom, what kind of procedures have been followed. So, you know, we see a real mess there on the horizon for Airbnb and companies like that to um, convince people that what they're actually offering is safe. And you know, you and I, we may want to have some say over whether or not the unit next door or below us or underneath us is used as a ghost hotel during a pandemic. And I don't think, um, you know, people have that say and they are afraid that, you know, this this list of a ban will actually negatively impact, you know, their ability to, to shelter in, in space, in place and to um, stay physically removed from people that may or may not have, um, you know, contracted COVID-19. Yeah, the problem here, of course, is we're living under a totally different set of standards now, aren't we? I mean, you know, even if people haven't used an Airbnb, but maybe even stayed in a hotel or something, yeah, those those rooms get clean on a daily basis. You know, they might change the sheets, they might change the towels, they vacuum. But COVID requires a whole different set. It means cleaning every surface and disinfecting, et cetera. You don't know that that's happening uh, or if it's happening with, you know, with when one group leaves and another one comes in. So even if I'm a customer, I'm thinking, am I going to be safe in this room? And then, of course, as you've mentioned earlier, you've got this whole problem here of common areas like elevators, et cetera, where you don't know who you're going to be uh, cohabiting with and, and, and what protections are going to be available there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think, you know, the data shows that where people, you know, the, the concentrate, where people come together to concentrate apartment buildings, you know, condo buildings, you have to be very cautious and, and, and use, you know, precaution the way you, uh, you move. Um, and, you know, I think we need to, to look at this and just opening up um, the, the entire province to allow companies like Airbnb to start operating again, um, you know, it may not be the right move at this point in time. So what would you recommend? That we just hold off, or would you recommend a, a discussion uh, with people in the industry about, about yeah. uh, some I mean, of the concerns ideally, that you've just raised? Yeah, ideally, I mean, I, I fully understand, and we fully understand the need to reopen the economy. Um, you know, that said, um, the short-term rental industry is um, not the same in terms of contributing to the local economy as the regulated accommodation sector, hotels and Airbnbs, where... Um, both in terms of job production, both in terms of um, tax uh, um, revenue generated and so on. Um, the ghost hotel industry is a gray area. It's a legal gray area. People operate um, in ways that, that allows people to siphon off a lot of money that um, doesn't trickle down. And I think, um, you know, there's a lot of risk um, taken here by the province to um, lump the short term rental industry into an economic recovery um, you know, when you when you compare this to the potential risks um, associated with doing that. 
with that in mind, though, uh, a lot of the stuff, and, and that's, that's not to diminish the, the concerns you've raised about COVID because they're very real concerns here, but a lot of the things you're talking about here, and maybe in, in the, under the, the blanket of, of regulations, uh, that's a discussion that probably should have happened even before COVID as, as this industry started to expand. Oh, yeah. I mean, this discussion is happening and has been happening. And um, the province itself went through a lengthy um, um, appeal process at the local planning appeal tribunal. Um, and a number of experts were called during this hearing that basically, um, you know, raised these points and illustrated that um, the short term rental industry, um, the economic uh, multiplier effect of, of the short term rental industry is, is really minimal. Um, and it, it benefits people like ordinary people like you and I that may want to rent out our own home to um, visitors to make some extra money. Um, you know, it may benefit ordinary residents doing this, but we would not do this during a pandemic. But these ghost hotel operators that have thousands of dozens and dozens and hundreds and thousands of um, condo units and apartment units um, and have turned them into quasi hotel stock, um, those people... Um, they have a lot to lose because they are very over leveraged, but they also, you know, didn't really um, contribute to um, the economy the same way that, let's say, um, the um, Fairmont Royal York would in the downtown core. Mm -hmm. So is there some trepidation by the people who are renting properties at the same time? I mean, as, as a potential customer, I can understand, yeah, I'm not so sure I want to do something like this. And I, I know we're talking about, for instance, condos mm -hmm. in downtown Toronto, which is, uh, I, I know, an area of concern and has been for some time. But we're also, now that we're into the summer season, you know, we're talking about cottage rentals and places up in, in Muskoka and places of that nature, too. Uh, are they going to be as, as anxious to rent those properties out right now, or are they going to be a little unsure as to whether or not it's the best thing for them? Um, I'm sure they're anxious. Um, we actually received a number of calls um, over the last couple of weeks from um, um, cottage um, areas and um, people asking about the short-term rental ban and how that impacts them. And, you know, I, I know that people are concerned about, um, you know, renting out cottages, having bookings for July, not knowing whether or not they have to cancel these bookings. Um, it's, it's a terrible situation for the entire hospitality industry. Um, it's completely tanked and, you know, that industry makes its revenue during the summer months and um, it's, it's really not looking good for, for this industry, um, whether it's the short-term rental industry or whether it's the, the regulated um, accommodation sector in general. Um, but, you know, that said, we've seen um, and we have heard the news about Airbnb too that, you know, Airbnb is losing a lot of, a lot of um, rentals and I think hosts that usually, you know, that rented out their own places are thinking twice about it, um, you know, choosing health over, um, you know, potential loss of revenue. There's a spin-off to this as well, though. And, you know, we're, we're talking specifically about people who may want to rent or maybe, as you say, have already booked stuff uh, and, and probably might have done this back in January before all the, 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 the mm -hmm. shutdown occurred and said, yeah, we always go to so-and-so. You know, we have a place up near Minden, for instance, and, you know, well, should we go this year? But, but if there's going to be some trepidation or even some cancellations, your point's well taken. A lot of those small towns uh, near some of these cottage areas rely on that kind of traffic in the summertime. That's 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 that, that's like their Christmas season up there. That's where they make their money. If if we don't go up there, they're going to be in trouble economically. Yeah, I mean, a hundred percent. And there is a big, you know, it's it's a huge question, and um, it's there are no easy answers. But we we have seen, um, you know, what happens when when people get infected um, in in rural areas, and you know the. The entire, you know, and that was a point that was raised earlier, that there were concerns not only in Ontario, but in other provinces in Canada, um, that we, have, we, would, we would spread um, COVID-19 from, you know, the city areas and, and highly developed urban areas into the rural areas that are not well equipped um, with infrastructure-wise to deal with uh, yeah. an increase in COVID cases. So, you know, there is a risk to that. And, you know... Um, we have to be careful how, how we approach it. Um, but, yeah, it, it's not an easy time for anyone, for sure. I mean, you know, Halliburton, Minden, any of these little towns up there in, the, in Cottage Area or anywhere in Ontario, I mean, we've got some great spots and great vacation spots. Uh, but your point is well taken. And, and I guess we also have to factor in the fact that uh, it was just about a month ago that the Premier and others were saying, don't go there. 
Uh, now right. the fact that they're going to say, okay, we can reopen, uh, I know the question, and I got an email from somebody the other day who was asking about the very same thing. Well, he's talking about reopening some of these Airbnbs and some of these cottage areas. We're still in the middle of a pandemic. It's not over. Uh, yeah. So is it is it safe to go there? And I think a lot of people are very concerned about that. Yeah, and I mean, we, we see the numbers are still rising, the COVID cases. Um, you know, they, we are in no way, um, you know, out of the worst of it. So, you know, when, when the ban got enacted, I think in early April, um, we may see more cases now than we did in early April when we actually came up with that with that ban in order to protect, um, you know, our, our communities from community spread of COVID-19. So um, opening it up now, after holding still for so long, I'm not sure if that is a, 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 the best the best solution here and the best um, thing to do at this point in time. Well, and, and you're right. I mean, you're, the infrastructure is not there. We were talking to some of the folks uh, from that area that have places up there, and uh, not everybody who, who, if they even test positive with COVID-19, is going to end up in the hospital. But you might. You don't know how it's yeah. going to impact you or somebody in your family. And they simply don't have the infrastructure. They don't have ventilators. Uh, you know, this it's not Toronto. It's not Hamilton. It's a. Uh, it's 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 you know very sparse up there, and uh, you have to wonder about what kind of an impact that's going to have. So, so here's. Here's a hypothetical then for you. Uh, you and I finished this conversation in a couple of minutes, and uh, you get a phone call right after that, and it's Doug Ford. He's saying, uh, listen, Tarvin, I just heard you on Bill Keller's show. What would you advise that we do? Because he hasn't made the announcement yet. He says he's probably going to in the next few days. What would your advice be to him? That's a very good question, and you're putting me on the spot here. I think I would have to... <laughs> it's have a hypothetical, because I don't think he's going to call you, but just on the... <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I, I would have to really think about it, um, you know, and I, I don't think a, uh, a a phone call like this and um, on the spot deciding the best strategy for reopening the economy in a particular industry is something that, you know, um, that it needs a lot more thinking and a lot more, um, you know, um, evidence-based decision-making. So, you know, I don't think that this is, this is going to happen and, you know, that shouldn't happen either. So... The advice then would probably, in a nutshell, be uh, just hit the pause button, Mr. Premier. Let's yeah. let's think about this. And uh, and if, right. I, I guess that there's got to be some feedback from the industry here too, wouldn't there? You'd think that would be advisable. Um, yeah, I mean, I'm sure that the the industry would like to see things opening up. Um, you know, I mean, but again, the industry is not. Um, you know, they're workers probably do not want to see things opening up until people have the right protections in place and, um, you know, feel that they are safe when they go to work and when they're performing um, their work. Um, so, you know, I think it's there. There are no easy answers here. And I think your point is well taken that hitting the pause button um, is probably a good idea, taking another look at this. And again, like maybe a regional approach that, that is staged over time um, that that is accompanied by rigorous testing so that we can actually see if we open up one part of the economy, one part of the uh, region, whether the numbers increase, the positive numbers in COVID increase or not. Um, and if you apply an approach like this, you, you are able to manage it. And, you know, if you see numbers increase, then, you know, it didn't work and we should, you know, hit the pause button again and don't start opening up this industry or this sector in other parts of the, of the province. So I think, at the end of the day, what it comes down to is having the infrastructure to test and to trace. And I'm not sure that Ontario is at the best, uh, you know, spot to to deliver on this right now. So I think the pause button is probably the safest. Yeah, I, I, I agree with you. I don't think the numbers are there to indicate that we're ready to go through that process with t with tracking and testing in this situation. And and I feel for the, the people in the industry, I get it. Uh, you know, whether it's the restaurant industry, the hospitality industry, because there's so many people relying on this. I mean, there's an awful lot of resort areas here. We're talking about cottage country or, or Airbnbs in downtown Toronto, but you know, there's places like Blue Mountain and other resorts that do great business in the summertime. They don't know whether or not to hire staff because they don't know if anybody's coming. And and yeah, no, and a lot of people rely on those jobs. Blue Mountain completely closed for the summer. Yeah, not yeah, open it. yeah, yeah. And and you know, even if they say, okay, fine, you can start this again. Uh, who's going to go? <laughs> and how much staff do you bring back? I mean, it's a it's a, it's a tough call for everybody. Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, it's, I, it, go ahead. It's, uh, I mean, the hospitality industry is particularly hard hit because it literally relies on people coming together. From all parts over the, you know, from all parts of Ontario, all parts of the GTA, all parts of the world, um, and then you know, co-living, cohabitating in, in you know, small 
spaces together, you know, in hotels, in short-term rentals, and what have you. Um, you know, this is all falling by the wayside um, in 2020, um, it looks like. Um, so, you know, this industry is particularly hard hit, and it will take a long time for it to rebound and recover. Um, you know, I'm not sure whether the, the so-called home-sharing industry and Airbnb will be a business model that will actually survive this and that consumer have the confidence in um, that that largely unregulated and still wild west uh, uh, economy uh, area of the economy is not very confident inspiring um, you know that and that during the best of times you know you mentioned it all the all the issues associated with Airbnbs um, you know pre-COVID now we we add this entire new layer to it I think um, you know it'll be a tough call and it will be difficult for this industry to rebound but I, I do have hope for you know the the hotel industry because they they know uh, they don't mingle with residents in residential areas you know they're zoned specifically they yeah. have processes and procedures in place to deal with um, anything that comes up um, you know if you ever have an issue with your Airbnb try to get help anywhere you know you can call 311 no help you can call Airbnb no help um, you know you can call the cops you know they probably won't show up so it, the Airbnb situation is bad before the COVID crisis, but I think, um, you know, for this industry to, to recover will be an enormous task. Good points all, and hopefully things that uh, the province will take into consideration. Uh, Torben, thank you so much for this. A great conversation today. I really appreciate your input. Thank you very much for having us. Take, take care. Care. Torben White, it's uh, from Fair B&B. And it's tough. I mean, it really do. I, as a matter of fact, I know more than a couple of people that actually have bought, you know, investment properties, figuring, oh, we can make our money back by renting in the summer. And they're a little worried about whether or not anybody's even going to rent this summer because of what's going on. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. We're not talking about money. We're talking about uh, whether or not uh, the economies, Canadian and Ontario economies for that matter, are opening too fast or too slowly. But uh, let's face it, there's a real push right now to let this economy get back on its feet. Well, the Bank of Canada's deputy governor says the impact of COVID-19 virus on the economy may have peaked already. We may be on the downslide here and uh, on the way to recovery. Uh, we're not quite sure what the criterion is for making a, a statement like that, but we're going to delve into that in just a couple of seconds. Ian Lee joins us from the Sprott School of Business at Carleton University in Ottawa. Ian, thanks so much for the time. Good to have you with us today. Uh, my pleasure, Bill. You're a, you're a numbers guy, have been for years and years, but you're also a pragmatist, pragmatist and combine these two things and, and give me your read on this. I mean, is, is, is this spin that they're giving us here right now, or do you see some positive signs? Uh, I do. Uh, uh, we're talking relatively, you know, I, I'm not playing with words, we're talking relative progress. Yeah. Uh, where, I mean, you know, we're deep, deep in a hole. And uh, so uh, I, do I think we've bottomed out? Are we at the bottom of the hole? Yes. Are we starting to climb back up? Yes, but uh, the the top of the hole is is way way above. <laughs> it's way there's blue sky way Just above a our heads little, right little now. Little speck up there down in the hole. <laughs> so yes, it is. I think it has the latest unemployment numbers that showed growth. Um, it shows it's turning because some businesses are reopening. We know that. Uh, you know, um, uh, you know, nurseries, uh, hardware stores, Home Depot stores. Uh, the customer, I know that because I go shopping there. You know, the mm-hmm. customers are back in the stores. There's lots of customers there. I can see them. They're hiring more people again, um, and uh, so it is turning around. But anybody that thinks, oh well, you know, it's just a question of just you know being a couple of months back to to go back to normal. Uh, I, I'm, I don't think that's going to happen at the same time because I think there's got a lot of destruction that has occurred. I mean, destruction of businesses, mostly overwhelmingly small business, that will not reopen their doors and there will not be jobs to go back to. But I think we've bottomed out, and now the question is how long is it going to take to climb back out of this very, very deep hole that we've created? Is that up to us as consumers? I'm sorry? Is, is, is that recovery really up to us as consumers? Um, no, no, it's not. In fact, I was uh, testifying before the Finance Committee yesterday afternoon from uh, 5 until 7, and there were about seven or eight witnesses. Jack Mintz was on there, too, and uh, Philip Cross, a former a very senior statistician. And we were talking mm-hmm. about this, this very question. And I, I know there were seven witnesses, and there's many more Canadians than seven people, but I think that there, was, there were two people there from the left side, 
uh, very distinguished, intelligent uh, people, uh, Angela McEwen from uh, the CUPE, and um, and um, and, uh, and and another individual from uh, formerly from the Center for Policy Alternatives. Where I'm going with this is that I think there was agreement, consensus, that this is a not an ordinary recession, such as we've experienced in the past, where you go and do stimulus to stimulate the consumers. Uh, because this is a supply-side recession. It's where we shut down supply. We shut down the economy. We shut down businesses. And uh, so it's going to require different tools and different instruments. Uh, if anything, consumers built, and I've seen the savings rates, because all of us that were sitting at home didn't have a lot of opportunity to spend our money. Yes, you could buy online, but you couldn't go to restaurants or bars or all that stuff. And so the savings rate went up very dramatically. So Canadians are sitting, not everyone. I realize that some lost their job and don't have any money. But in the aggregate is there's a whole bunch of money sitting out there right now in some consumer bank accounts that could start spending again. Now, the problem is going to be how do we, how do we um, uh, get these businesses to hire again and start producing again and, and deal with the, the shock of those companies that are going to vanish. And so I think it's going to be uh, much more difficult to recover from this than normal because it's not just a question of just throwing money out the door. Um, we're going to, as I said, there's going to be business, up to a third of small businesses could fail. And uh, that's just a staggering number when you consider they employ most of the people in the economy of Canada. Exactly. You brought something else up that I, I want you to expand upon, if you could. Supply chain. I, I also spend a lot of time. There's a Home Depot about a block and a half of our house here in Ancaster, and uh, I, I pre-COVID, and I was in there so often they were already giving me an orange apron. I mean, because like, there's always yeah, little yeah. things that you want to get, right? Yeah. I was in there the other day because they've reopened now, and uh, uh, and I asked for. They said, "Well, we don't have it." He says, "We're having trouble getting product." He says, "Supply chain has been so screwed up by this thing. It's going to take us a while to get back on our feet from that standpoint." And yeah. the shelves are full, but not with all the stuff that you want they don't have the variety that's right i ha i have noticed the very same phenomenon i realize this is anecdotal but i'm not just going to one store i've been to home hardware stores i've been to rona stores i've been to, i'm primarily at home depot because that's where i go but i've also been to other stores um and i do notice that i've noticed it in the grocery stores too mm -hmm. yes there's lots of food on the shelves but then you can see shelves in every store i go to loblaws walmart where you can see where there's just shelves are empty yeah. And the shelves never used to be empty of anything, and uh, and so there are there have been disruptions in the supply chain. I'm confident that they will, through you know, as we return to quote normality, that I think it'll uh, they'll get fixed. But I don't think it's tomorrow morning. I think it's probably going to take the rest of this year mm. to uh, for them to bring the supply chains, whether it's agricultural or home home. Uh, home products back into balance. And then, of course, Bill, there's the other issue is because of this increasingly um, nasty uh, relationship between uh, China and the United States and increasing demands by people from different walks of the uh, parts of the economy to uh, repatriate uh, supply chain production to North America, it's going to be very interesting in the medium term going out um, what this is going to do to our the availability of product and also, of course, the pricing. Because the reason that a lot of this stuff went offshore to China was because it was really cheap. And, it, and we like, we consumers, and I'm one of them, like to get things. If I can pay less for the same product than more, then of course I want to pay less. Sure. And uh, so if there's repatriation of supply chains, are we going to see price increases uh, down the road? Right now, the bank cat is worried about deflation. I'm more worried in the medium term, and I'm talking medium term as in one to two years, uh, whether we're going to see some, uh, some price inflation. With that in mind, uh, and the concerns about supply chain, and, and there are some, of course, uh, businesses that rely more on Chinese products than others, yes. uh, are we going to have to reinvent our economy or at least modify it and maybe start, like, like we did with personal protective equipment? I mean, we relied on yeah. China extensively and found out they, they just can't supply everybody anymore when there's a rush on stuff like this. Yeah. Uh, is that an opportunity for us? I mean, it's a challenge, but it could also turn into an opportunity for employment. It is. It is. You're right. I, I'm not. I don't want you to think, uh, or your listeners to think that I'm suggesting that we're just going to hold as bolus, you know, drop uh, a wall between us and China, and that nothing's going to come from China. I think there's going to be a strategic, and that's not a buzzword, a very strategic reevaluation. What 
do we not want to be dependent on? In other words, what are the things that we no longer want to rely on China for in the event of a crisis? In other words, what's essential, what's strategic, and what's eh, not so important? I mean, to use a sort of extreme case to get my point across quickly, plastic Tupperware or whatever you want to call it, you know, the plastic dishes we yeah. put our cucumbers in and so forth. I don't think anybody's going to argue that that's an essential product. You know, uh, yes, I'd like to pay 99 cents for it or a dollar 49, you know, but if it goes up to 249, uh, you know, who cares? Um, you know, it's not that critical. Or, or a lawn and garden tools to do my gardening. You know, that's not critical. But there are, there was a report just released. It was an astonishing report over 100 pages long by two labor MPs, left-wing labor MPs from the UK, and full of graphs and charts and footnotes that like, was very well written. And they analyzed not just UK, but uh, US, of uh, the industries where they were wholly uh, they, uh, or partially dependent on China, and they identified those industries that they said were important to the national economy. Well, where I'm going with it, you can imagine what they were arguing. They were arguing for repatriation of the supply chain. You can say, well, you know, that's just two left-wing labor MPs from UK. It was endorsed by five conservative leaders, including uh, the frontrunner in the Conservative Party here in Canada, as well as some conservative senators in the United States. And I thought, this is interesting. We're seeing a shift here where there's increasing bipartisan agreement between liberals and conservatives on uh, reassessing the our relationship with China uh, in terms of those products and those industries that we want, we think should be back home, that we do not want to be dependent on China for. And so over the next two, three, four, five years, I think partly because of politics, because MPs and cabinet ministers and governments are demanding this, Partly because businesses are making a strategic decision. Think of Bell Canada only several days ago saying, we're going with Ericsson for 5G, mm -hmm. backbone of the, the equipment. We're not going to go with Huawei. So there's going to be a strategic realignment going on, partly driven by politics and government uh, rules, and partly driven by company strategic decisions. And it's going to play out for us, you and I, and everyone else, because eventually it'll show up in the marketplace. I'm talking in the stuff on the on the shelving, on the shelves, and so I think we're going to see changes. How dramatic and radical they are yet to be determined. Speaking of those two words, dramatic and radical, uh, I, I by no means want to suggest that we're looking at COVID in the rearview mirror. It is still with us, but there were some pretty dire predictions made about how this was going to impact the economy, as, as there was about the spread of the virus. And mm -hmm. and as we look at some of the stats we've accumulated now here in June. Uh, the medical prof professionals are telling us, Ian, that, well, you know what, wasn't as bad as they thought it was going to be because we did what they told us to do, you know, washing hands, physical distancing, that sort of stuff. Uh, what about the economy? Some of the numbers I've seen here, they were talking about just a, a terrible, terrible outcome, and it, it has taken a hit to be sure. But I'm, I'm seeing some stories right now that saying this, this peak to trough decline is not as bad as they thought it was going to be, uh, and, and I think the Bank of Canada and probably some other folks have to take some credit for that. Uh, this was the, um, I, I'm going to partially agree and partially disagree with you. Oh, good, okay. And, and, and I'm not sitting on the fence. In terms of the consequence of the shutdown, uh, the Bank of Canada in its latest note of only two days ago, explaining why they didn't uh, cut the interest rate, put this in there, um, how the government's fiscal and monetary response mitigated or softened most of the really extreme damage from the shutdown. So the government interventions, a fiscal and monetary policy, I'm talking the CERB, and, yeah. you know, support for businesses and so forth. Now, we're talking a quarter of a trillion dollar deficit, so this is not trivial. And it did uh, mostly, mostly um, uh, absorb the hit from the shutdown. So I don't want to suggest or agree with you that the the uh, the economic uh, cost of the shutdown wasn't severe or it was as bad as we thought it was if not worse but the consequences of the shutdown were mitigated by the extraordinary government intervention quarter of a trillion by the government of Canada and that does not count how much the Bank of Canada has done because that's off balance sheet so to speak and they're, they've been doing massive amounts of things like buying bonds of Newfoundland and Labrador 
and stuff like that. So huge intervention to soften or lessen or mitigate the impact the, of the lockdown. But the lockdown itself did cause enormous damage to the economy. Why we're not rioting in the streets is because people are, the suffering was, uh, I don't want to say it was eliminated, it wasn't, but it was dramatically reduced. And so people aren't worrying right now, uh, you know, about not being able to eat, for example. Now, down the road, it may come back to bite us yet, because CMHC has argued that there could be as many as 20% of mortgages in delinquency and being foreclosed upon by next spring. So we still haven't seen the full knock-on effect of this lockdown in terms of our economy. And we're not going to even see that until the government finally says, okay, everybody open your doors and see who opens them. Exactly. And this is why it's, you know, the co- I think the COVID itself has peaked because the numbers are showing it. Every country, yeah. it's not me saying this, public health is saying this. Infections yeah. are way down, mortality is down. Every country, Italy, UK, Germany, uh, Sweden, US, even in the US, people don't, they see the stories, the headlines, but they, if you actually look at the data, it's down significantly across the US and Canada. But the knock-on effect, there's going to be this delay, and it's going to, there's still things happening underneath the hood. I mean, we saw Hertz uh, failing. Um, one, uh, the CEO of Boeing is predicting that by September uh, of this year, that's in two, three months, we're going to see one of the four largest airlines on the planet Earth close its doors in the States. Rumor is it, it's United Airlines. Don't know if that's true. The point is there's still a lot more knock-on. There's still some delayed uh, impacts going. There could be another rental, car rental company. It could be some hotel chains going down. And so the knock-on effect is going to be very significant. It's not going to be, okay, everybody back to work now, and let's just sort of forget about the last 90 days. There's going to be higher-than-average unemployment. And even though the quarter-trillion deficit's going to go down, and we, everyone at the Finance Committee agreed yesterday, oh, as people go back to work, a lot of that deficit's going to reduce. But it certainly is not going to go back to zero. It's going to be much bigger than it was before because there's going to be a lot of people out of work because their businesses have closed their doors. And uh, so there's still a lot of negative economic news to come, even though the worst of the virus itself, according to all the data, is behind us. Ian, as always, thanks so much for the perspective on this. Uh, Have a great weekend. We'll talk again soon. Send you, Bill. Thanks very much. Take care. Ian Lee from the Sprott School of Business at Carleton University. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.